We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and the first part of chapter 6. We're in a series that we're calling It's About Time. This past week, Kevin asked me what I'd be preaching on today, and I told him 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 6, 2. And he thought about it for a second, and then he asked what that had to do with time. So I reminded him of that second verse in chapter 6. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. could be literally translated, now is the favorable time. Uh, the word the NIV translates as favor is actually an adverb, now's, or an adjective. Now is the favorable time. That is, it's the favorable kairos, that word we've been seeing. There are moments of opportunity, kairos in Greek, when we can connect with God, be transformed in ourselves, and change our world. If we aren't willing to spend the currency of time and effort, and sometimes of money and reputation, to buy up those moments, they'll pass us by. That's why the psalmist urged people to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. That implies that there may come a time when God may not be found. I think King Saul found it, so we looked at his story a few weeks ago. There were years, maybe decades, when he could have sought the Lord and found him. He could have called on him and received an answer. He had opportunities, kairos, but he passed them up. At the end of his life, finding the Lord was no longer an option because Saul couldn't bring himself to look. God couldn't be found but that was because of a thousand choices Saul made to be lost. So as we look at this text, remember that opportunities can be bought up to our benefit or passed up to our loss. As we look at this text, notice that even now we are in a kairos moment. One to be bought up or passed by. So let's read our text. Uh, our text really starts in verse 11, but I'm going to start with verse 14 and read down through chapter 6, verse 2. This is verse 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the, word, the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. 
Let me give you a literal rendering of the end of, of chapter 6, verse 2, which sound, it's going to sound a little off to our ears because the verbs that we would expect to be there in English are missing. But the lack of verbs heightens the sense of urgency. Look, a favorable kairos. Now. Look, a day of salvation. Now. Now is the time. But why is it the time? Why is this a favorable kairos? Why is now a day of salvation? To answer that question, we have to go back to the argument that Paul has been making. Because these words are the last car in a train of thought that started back in chapter 5, verse 11. So we're going to hop on board right there. And there Paul insists that there is a fundamental reality to people that is not immediately apparent. See, the most important thing about you is not something people can see. There is a you behind the public you. Now, we all know that, but there's also a you behind the private you. There is a you that even you don't know much about, the real you, which is plain to God, verse 11, and has to do with what's in your heart, verse 12. It's from there that your true self inevitably and unavoidably emerges. On the day of judgment, you and I, who we really are, will be undeniably clear. You and I can judge a person by his education or his wardrobe or by his cool quotient. Or we can judge him by his theology, his church attendance, his vocabulary. We can assume that we know him but we can't see what the Bible calls the inner person, literally the inside man. Only God sees that. St. Paul learned that lesson. When he was a Pharisee, he even judged Christ by standards like education and accent and cool quotient. He once regarded Christ and everyone else from what the NIV calls a worldly point of view, or the Greek says, according to the flesh. That is, by appearances. But, Paul says, no more. I'm done with judging people by appearances. He made that mistake with Jesus. He'll make it no more. Verse 16, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Something had forever changed the way he looked at the people around him. At friends, at family, at strangers, at enemies. That something, verse 14 and 15, was the love of of the Christ who died for all and was raised again. <clears throat> okay, this is going to get a little heavy, so, but stay with me. Paul understood the death and resurrection of Jesus to be the central event in history, the hinge on which the whole world turns. Paul would have said that the death and resurrection of Jesus was not the, only the most important thing that ever happened, but it is the most important thing that ever happened to you. And that's true whether you know it or not, even whether you believe it or not. Paul thought deeply about this, and he came to the conclusion that the advent of Jesus had changed reality itself. He saw Christ's death and resurrection as tantamount to and prophetic of the death and resurrection of the whole world in ways that are beyond our grasp, ways that are metaphorical, but also literal and prophetic, Jesus' death means the death of every man, woman, and child, and the death of the world itself. Verse 14, we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. 
And Jesus' resurrection means the resurrection of every man and woman and the resurrection of the whole world. That truth broke on the apostle like the sun breaks over the horizon at dawn. And in its light, he suddenly saw everything else. Paul had previously appraised people by their answers to questions like, are you religious? Are you moral? Do you keep the finer points of the law? But now that the questions had changed, it was no longer, are you religious? But are you included in the Messiah? Are you in or are you out of Christ? There was more to Messiah, Paul realized, than he had previously imagined. He was more than the Jewish Savior. He was the fountain of life, the first fruits of the resurrection, the focal point of existence. Just as the old creation came into existence through him, so does the new one. And so does the new you, the true, immortal, glorious you. The new and true you will come into existence through him or will not come into existence at all. The overriding question is, are you in Christ? For Paul, Christ's death was more than a historical event. It had implications in the present, implications for humanity. Christ died for all, he wrote in verse 15, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and raised again. Christ's death was purposeful. He died for a reason. That, he died that, that's a Greek word, hina, which denotes purpose. He died that those who live should no longer live for themselves. We've spent a lifetime living for ourselves. Slaves of our own desires. But Christ died to free us from this most degrading of all slaveries. You can never stop living for yourself until you start living for him. Here's something else. Only when people are joined to Christ by faith are they also joined to their true selves, which, by the way, is also a matter of faith. The Christ who brings people to God also brings people to themselves. You are divorced from your new self, your true self, what the Bible describes as your glorified self if you don't have Christ. If you're separated from Christ, you're separated from yourself. Christ is the bridge from what you are now to what you could be, from your proto-self to the finished product. So verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Scientists tell us that the entire universe came into being in an instant from a single point, which they refer to as a singularity. But the Bible tells us that the entire creation came into being from a single person. Christ. Christ is the singularity out of which the first creation sprang and from which the new creation is emerging. He is the door between the spiritual and the material, between the eternal and the temporal. It's a door that opens both ways, allowing the material to come out of the spiritual and the spiritual to come out of the material. But it's all because of him.
Paul says that the person in Christ is a new creation. Do you understand what that implies? It means that in Christ, the new creation has already begun. His resurrection marked day one of the new creation. As Chesterton put it on the third day when the disciples came to the empty tomb, even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation. Just like the old creation, the new creation comes into being through Christ. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been, and we could add, or ever will be made. Both the old creation and the new come into existence through him. We live in a historically unique period. The period of overlap between the old age and the new. The old creation's hanging on while the new creation is coming in. And you see, that's not only true out there, it's true in here. The old person we are, were anyways, is hanging on, but the new person is emerging. The Christian lives in the overlap period between the old age and the new, and the overlap period between the old age and the new lives in the Christian. When Paul realized this, the way he looked at people changed. He now saw people, his friends, his family, the people who he loved, the people who hated him. He saw them all in relation to Christ. A stunning part, at least potentially, of the new creation that he died to bring into being. That changed Paul's outlook, and it excited him about his role in what he calls the ministry of reconciliation. Look at verse 19. That God was reconciling the word to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. The word translated reconciling here is one that's used, I think, seven times in the New Testament, six of them in the Corinthian letters, all of them by Paul. He used the same word in 1 Corinthians when he was writing about marriage in chapter 7. There he wrote that a divorced woman should either stay single or be reconciled, that's the word, to her husband. Humans have been divorced from God. But God is willing to take them back. In fact, he wants them back. He wants them back so badly that Christ died to make that possible. But we don't dare presume on God's desire to have us with him. Too often people think that they can just sort of sidle up to God and act as if nothing happened, as if nothing was wrong. You know how well that works in relationships, right? Like your marriage? It doesn't. And it doesn't work any better with God. Reconciliation is necessary because there has been offense and separation. Humans have turned from God and tried to live without him. We've ignored his gifts or taken them for granted. We've refused to submit to God and have gone our own way as if he didn't matter. We've paid no attention to what he said, and so there must be reconciliation. God has opened the door, he's invited us in, but still we must choose. We can stand outside on our pride, and refuse to come back. But if we do, we're going to lose out on what God's doing. We'll keep our pride, but we'll miss the new creation. 
But how do we know God will take us back after what we've done? I've known people who just couldn't believe God would take them back after what they'd done. How do we know? Because he's proved it. He hasn't been sitting around doing nothing while he waits for us to take the first step. While we were yet sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. He reached out to us first. He stretched out his arms to us from a cross. Christ sacrificed himself to heal the breach between humans and God. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That probably means a sin offering for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. We can't come back to God by acting as if nothing happened. That doesn't work. And God can't take us back acting as if nothing happened. Something has happened. We've rejected God's authority over us, and we've gone our own way. If God is not counting our sins against us, it's not because our sins don't count. Nor is it because we don't count. It's because Christ has been made sin, a sin offering for us. If you need proof that God will take you back, look at the cross. There you'll see God in Christ suspended between heaven and hell, reconciling the world to himself. In the year I was born, there were four climbers who tried to scale the nearly 6,000 vertical uh, feet north face of, of Mount Iger in, in the Alps, maybe the most dangerous climb in the world. It was August. Two of the climbers were Germans, two were Italians. The two Germans disappeared and were never found. The two Italians were stuck, exhausted and dying, on a narrow ledge a 1,000 feet below the summit. So the face of this mountain is all, more than a mile, almost sheer, straight up. The, the authorities would not permit a rescue attempt. They would not try it. It was too dangerous. Those two men were going to die on the side of the mountain. So a small group of Swiss climbers decided to launch a private rescue effort to save those two Italian climbers. So they carefully lowered a climber. There's more than one way to get to the top of the mountain, not up the sheer face. They went to the top and lowered a climber named Alfred Hellepart down the 6,000-foot north face on a cable less than an inch thick. Here's how he tells the story. This is how Hellepart told it. As I was lowered down the summit, my comrades on top grew further and further distant until they disappeared from sight. At this moment, I felt an indescribable aloneness. For the first time, I peered down the abyss of the north face of Iger. The terror of the sight robbed me of breath. The brooding blackness of the face falling away in almost endless expanse beneath me made me look with awful longing to the thin cable disappearing about me in the mist. I was a tiny human being dangling in space between heaven and hell. The sole relief from terror was my mission to save the climbers below. This is what James Edward, the theologian, says. In Jesus, God became a tiny human being, dangling between heaven and hell. He did it to save the people trapped below. Those people are you and me.
Ever since Adam, humans have been born into enemy territory, under a hostile flag. We're born on the wrong side. We've been aligned with the opposition, and all of us have acted like it. But God has offered amnesty. He has extended grace to any and all of us to come over to his side to enter his kingdom. He has instituted a unilateral ceasefire, a cessation of hostilities. It's what St. Peter was talking about when he wrote, He is patient with you, not willing that any should perish, but everyone should come to repentance. He sent his message of reconciliation to us. He will not count our offenses against us. He will welcome all who come to him. We can join his side. As God's ambassador, Paul urged people not to miss this opportunity. This is chapter 6, verse 1. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. The grace he has in mind is the offer of reconciliation. Don't receive God's offer of reconciliation in vain, he pleads. Christ died to make it possible. If you ignore it, you cannot hope to be part of the new creation. I have a recall notice from my 07 Malibu and a pile of papers on my desk at home. The pile keeps getting bigger. I haven't seen it now, I think, in months, but it's there. I'm embarrassed to tell you how long it's been there. It says that the dealership will fix a particular problem for free. All I have to do is come in. But I received that recall notice in vain. I still have the notice. I kept it because I thought it was important. I'm going to do something about it someday. But I haven't done anything about it. I received it in vain. Paul pleads with people not to do the same thing with God's notice of reconciliation. The offer will not last forever. The grace period will end. Because of what Christ has done, the time of God's favor is now, not later. That line, the time of God's favor, verse 2, translates the phrase, the acceptable kairos. Now is the acceptable kairos because now we have the opportunity to be accepted. Now is the time God is extending reconciliation because of Christ's sacrifice. Now is the time to join God's side, enter his kingdom, become his person. There will come a day when that offer is no longer valid. Last winter, for Kevin's birthday, I bought him a certificate for a round of golf at a nearby golf course. And then I bought one for myself so that we could go together. And I gave him the certificate on his birthday, February 15th, with every intention of taking him golfing when the weather warmed up in the spring. Never made it. So, you know, we'll just go in the summer, right? Never got to it. When October rolled around, I, I thought I finally found a day when we could both go. So I got out the certificate and discovered it had expired the day before. <clears throat> Some of you, all of us, have received God's gracious message of reconciliation, the notification that he'll accept you, take you in, not count your sins against you. But you haven't done anything with it. 
like me with my car, you haven't discarded the notice because you know it's important. You don't even know why you're putting it off. You intend to get around to it someday, but it never seems to be the right time. Now is the right time. If you don't do it now, what makes you think you'll do it later? Don't receive God's grace in vain. Do something with it while you can. Now is the acceptable time. It's the time of acceptance. Don't miss it. Be reconciled to God. He will accept you. Christ is the guarantee of it. But you must come to him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray especially for those of us who have received the notification, know that it's true and we haven't done anything about it. Just keep putting it off another day. God, may it not be another day, but today. Would you help them now by your grace, by your spirit, to be reconciled to you? to take you at your word and come to you. Lord, I pray you'll do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. After the song and before we're dismissed, if you say to yourself, I need that, I know I need that, I'm going to invite you to come up here. Come right over here and meet with our prayer helpers or with me. And we want to see you make that decision. Today's the day. Not some other time, but today. Let's stand together and sing.